Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Good morning, church family. We are very thankful that you're here with us today. I hope you've had a great weekend so far. If you didn't know, yesterday was actually Veterans Day. And so I just want to ask if you are uh, someone who served in the military in our church, if you just stand for a moment, we just want to acknowledge you and thank you for doing that. So you can stand up, give my hand. Thank you very much. We are. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you for your service. That's the Eagles fan who's wearing shorts, by the way, in the back there. Uh, we're very thankful that you guys have served our country, you ladies and gentlemen, have served our country and uh, given us the opportunity to have freedoms like meeting together here. And we're not doing this underground or secret. Um, anybody who wants to can come here at this public school and uh, worship Jesus Christ together. So thank you so much for being a part of that so far this morning, each one of you. If you're a guest with us this morning, uh, there's only one thing we ask you to do, and it's when you're comfortable. And so maybe today's your second time, third time, fourth time visiting, and you've never filled out the card that we call a connection card. It's in your worship program. If you'd fill it out as soon as you're comfortable, you know that we're not going to show up at your front door trying to get you part of our pyramid scheme or whatever type deal that you're worried about people showing up at your house for. Um, we would love to have you fill out that card. Take it out to the orange tent on your way out this morning. And out there, we're going to make a donation to a ministry because you filled that card out. And there's information about that in the worship program. We've also got a gift that we want to give to you. And if you're a coffee drinker, I think you really want to fill that card out. Uh, we want to bless you with that this morning. But today's a, a special Sunday for us. Next week, we're going to wrap up our series we've been doing and the one another's. And then, believe it or not, the Sunday after next week, we start celebrating Christmas. Can you believe that? How many of you here are celebrating Christmas already? Music, movies, we got some awe, like booze, and then there's some people that are excited. You've been doing this since like October, whatever. So we'll talk more about that. But the Christmas sermon series starts in a couple weeks, and uh, we'll be celebrating Advent together and uh, walking through some Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 2 stuff and uh, seeing what the Lord has for us in that. But today is a special Sunday. Today is a Sunday that's celebrated all around our nation called Orphan Sunday, and it's a time where we talk about uh, the orphan crisis that's in our world and then what our role is as a church to be a part of the solution of that, because that's God's plan, that we'd be a solution. This is not just something we wedge into our agenda uh, because we, you know, we've got a special heart for this because we just made it up. It's God's heart. And so he talks about it, and, and each one of us, whether you foster, adopt, or in some way are called in a response or commands of the New Testament Scripture to have a response and be a part of this. And so we're going to talk about some of that today, and I brought a, a special speaker for us this morning. And I'm really excited about him preaching the Word. I've already heard the message once, but I know how it is. Sometimes you preach a message once, and the next message is a little bit different. And I'm not saying to attend both services. We don't have space for that. Uh, but I do it myself sometimes. And so, Dan, I'm, I love what you said the first service. I'm looking forward to what you're going to have for us in this, this next service. But he's preaching from Isaiah. And uh, the reason why I'm excited about Dan preaching, he's one of my mentors, for one. So he's invested in my life and, and shaped me as a man. Um, he's got a lot of different titles that I could share with you, but I'm not sure after hearing your sermon if that was a good idea to say all the credentials, but I'll tell him a little bit about why you're here. Um, Dan's written some books. Uh, one of the books is on biblical manhood, so you can look that up on Amazon. I'd recommend that. It's a quick read, uh, but really dives into the heart of a man. And then another book, that, that's more, his more recent book, is called Live Smart. You can check that out. I met him when he was serving as the vice president at Southern Seminary up in Louisville, Kentucky. And I went up there and did my doctorate there. Got some Kentucky people I see shaking their hands in the back. They're cheering for everything today. It's awesome. They're, they're live. They're ready. Um, but I, Dan was up there. He, was, he oversaw the doctoral program that I was a part of and, and poured into my life through that and had an impact on me through that. And I realized here's a guy who's a real man's man and has a heart for Jesus. And that's what we want men to be like in our church. And so I'm excited about having him stand in front of you as an example of what we want men to look like in our church. And kind of where he serves now, he's actually serving as a, a special advisor to the governor in the state of Kentucky and oversees all of their adoption and foster care and really trying to reimagine what a, adoption and foster care should look like in Kentucky but also uh, has an impact, and he's, it's the only position, right, in all of the states. He's overseeing, uh, really, the whole United States. They're going to be a, a sample for how to revolutionize, really, the adoption and foster care system. And so he's got two kids that he's adopted, wonderful wife, Jan. Let him be here today. Jane, let him be here today. And um, I want you to just give him a welcome while he comes on up here. Give him a hand. And Dan, we're thankful for you.
Let me pray for you this morning. Father, thank you so much for Dan and uh, just for the graciousness he has of coming here and being away from his own church, uh, for his heart as he's intimately involved with this issue that we're talking about today with orphan care and um, just the way that you've worked in his life to bring him to this place where he's serving in this capacity, even in Kentucky and and for the United States here. I know he's a gospel guy. He's a church guy who's now serving with our government, and we thank you for that. We thank you for his boss, who's a governor, the governor there, who's a gospel guy and realizes the answer to this problem is not with more money, it's not with more programs in the government, it's not with laws, but it's ultimately in this room, in the church, and that the church is your plan. And God, I pray that you'd use us. I pray you'd spark in each one of our hearts something that you want us to do. I know we can't all do everything. I know we can't all adopt. I know we can't do those things, but some might. And uh, you may want each one of us to do something different. I pray that we'd be open to that this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for the opportunity to stand before your people and to shepherd them regarding orphan care in the United States, and in particular in North Carolina. You may not know this, but there are approximately 11,000 orphans in your state, and in Wake County in particular, there are 687 right around the church here who are awaiting forever families. And so I just want to lay that at your feet as we kind of march our way into Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17. I don't know why um, we don't dedicate sermons. You know, like in athletics, they dedicate sermons. So I'm going to dedicate this sermon to Reclaim 117, which is out there in the foyer, which you're going to take action when we leave today and go by and visit that table. So we never get to do that in the ministry of preachers. We never get to dedicate, you know, sermons to families and stuff. So I'm going to start a trend. This one's dedicated to Reclaim 117. So uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity. I've got a huge task. We've got a lot of work to do uh, this morning. Um, th- kind of threefold gold that I want to provide for you. I-, I, want, um, I want us to feel the weight of this text. It is a heavy one. I- I'll be up front. Um, it has some ouch in it. Uh, but that's the nature of the text. And as you know, as your pastor faithfully teaches every week, you're faithful to the text, right? So it's going gonna, it's gonna to be weighty. But I also want to be... Uh, inspirational to you and kind of call you to action, right? And then towards the end, we're going to be really practical because I really believe everyone can do something for orphans, all right? And so we're going to deal with the whole. Uh, Just to give you a little bit of statistics, just to get them in your mind to think about, you know, the crisis that we face in the United States. And it's even larger globally, but in the United States, every two seconds, a child, uh, every two minutes, I'm sorry, uh, comes into care in the United States. Every two seconds globally, every two minutes, and about every two and a half hours in North Carolina, a child is orphaned uh, to no fault of their own. Uh, they come into uh, the system and into the state's care. Um, the beauty of my role is that I'm bilingual. I can speak church but I also can speak state. I'm on the inside of the cabinet, so I kind of can go in and out, and you're probably thinking, is there a government official about to talk to us about Jesus? Yes. Uh, unapologetically, uh, we pray, we care, and uh, w- that's why I'm here to serve in that capacity and really to serve up a meal uh, concerning orphan care. I love what Scott said. This isn't really a Sunday problem once a year. You know, we mark this in the calendar. We're grateful that uh, nationally, we recognize it as Orphan Care Sunday, but really it's every day uh, is Orphan Care Day because there are a ton of orphans all around us that need a, a loving forever family. And so I want to put that at your feet, just kind of frame up our conversation um, this, this morning. So we're going to be in Isaiah 1. So take a copy of God's Word, Isaiah 117, and uh, either turn on your Bible or you have a hard copy like I do. Um, I'm reading out of the NASB. It's the one Jesus used, so take it or leave it. Your pastor's chosen to use a lesser version in the ESV, but I'm choosing to use the most literal translation. Um, And we're going to just read 117, just to get it in our minds, but we're going to work all around it, okay? So we've got some some lifting to do. So let me just give you a little bit of context. So we're parachuting into Isaiah, right? Um, That's an Old Testament prophet. The reason we have prophets is because there's problems. There's sin in the world. Anytime it gets to a certain level, God deploys a prophet. Um, So this is the prophet Isaiah. And um, he's a major prophet. He's a major prophet, not because he's like a major player. It's just the size of the book. So you have minor prophets. Those are the smaller books like Hosea, Joel. You have major prophets 
There's not a varsity and a JV prophet. These are all prophets of God. But it's just the size of the, the book and the density of the book. So Isaiah is a huge book, so we call it a major prophet. It's in God's big book, the Old Testament. And the time is uh, about 700 years before Christ. And uh, Isaiah's ministry spanned about 50 years. Uh, his accountability group would have been, his buddies were Hosea, Joel. Uh, those were his kind of accountability group. And, um, and so this is the book of, of Isaiah. Let's read 117 so you can kind of appreciate it as we move in. Because I know I'm going to give you a, little, a, a few more tidbits about context so that you'll appreciate, kind of take the text from black and white to color. But uh, let's just read this text because it's all verbs here uh, and challenge to us in our topic this morning. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Or correct the oppression, ESV says. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. This is our text that's before us. This is what I want us to focus on. And again, it'll be weighty and how we approach it. It should be inspiring, I hope, uh, for you. And also, it should be extremely practical. Here, let me give you some shorthand. Here's what's going on. This is the capital city, southern kingdom, Right? This is Jerusalem. The people became big talkers, but they had very little action that backed up their big talk. So they were coming and worshiping, how great thou art, but there was little action towards injustice, towards vulnerable people. And God sends Isaiah to interrupt their hypocrisy, their fake worship. So they're checking off the boxes, they're killing it in worship. But there's little action. They're, they're, not, they're, they're not taking care of people. There's tons of injustice all around them, like in our current culture. And they've kind of got their heads in the sand. And so he sends Isaiah to, to awaken them out of this stupor that they're in. Now, Isaiah is the perfect guy. He doesn't introduce himself to Isaiah 6. And the reason why is because it's so intense and so urgent that he just jumps into the topic in chapter 1. And then about chapter 6, he says, yeah, in the year King Uzziah dies, and he talks about his calling and credentials to actually speak to it, where all the other major prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they all spend the first chapter saying, oh, I'm an idiot. I don't know how I can do this. You know, kind of talking about their credentials, you know, and kind of setting up the context for what they're about to say because they're going to poke God's people in the eye. That's what prophets do. They just poke. And uh, so this is what, what's going on here. And you can kind of sense the urgency, but he's the right guy. Here's why. His daddy was the brother to King Amaziah. So he grew up in the capital city in Jerusalem, and he knew his way around the royal courts. He also knew his way around politics. He just was savvy. Uh, he he uh, understood how things can be navigated, how you move the ball down the field. He's extremely eloquent. Uh, he's extremely educated. You can tell by his vocabulary. If you would look at the whole book of Isaiah, the, the word pictures are just stunning. Even in chapter 1, we'll point out a couple in a second here. That they're just really stunning. This guy's a highly capable guy to speak to the issue. And the book of, Roman, uh, the book of Isaiah is the Romans of the Old Testament. So it's the most theologically dense book in the Old Testament. It's, it's deployed 54 times in the New Testament. It's quoted 54 times. So it's the most quoted Old Testament book. So this is a pretty significant book. And for sure, this is probably the most significant chapter in the book. Outside of Isaiah 53, this is the, probably, I'd probably put it in second. But it's, it kind of gets you understanding why the book of Isaiah exists. Prophets exist because there's a problem. They're not happy clappy. Uh, they're coming in to deal with a specific issue. And in this case, you have hypocrisy in worship that's not taking any action for and towards vulnerable people. One more piece of context. It was both the best of times and the worst of times there in Jerusalem, in the capital city. Best of times because they're flourishing materially. On the outside, they're on their A-game. Businesses are happening Buildings are being popped up, cranes everywhere. I mean, there's temples being built. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty prosperous time. But on the other side of the coin, that gave them way to apathy and coldness. And they set aside care for people, care for vulnerable people in particular. And so they're kind of at the point of chapter one, they're in the spiritual gutter. 
so to speak. They're not getting it. And what makes it really hard is they don't understand. They don't understand how bad it is. They lack self-awareness to what's going on. And that's why God says, enough's enough. I'm sending in a prophet. I'm going to deploy the special forces here. They're going to come into the capital city, and they're going to speak to the issues that you can't just sing and worship and never take action towards vulnerable people. That is the very context that we find that kind of surrounds Isaiah 117. And so they've given themselves over to um, this, this issue. And we know from James, right, faith without works is what? It's dead. Dead, dead. Real dead, right? It's, it's, a, it's a pretty big deal. And so what Isaiah calls them to is that he says, listen, God despises posers. It doesn't matter if you check off all the boxes and you do all the religious things. If there's never any action, if your faith doesn't have any works, you should be at minimum suspicious. At minimum suspicious, but you should call into question, is this legitimate? Like, can I just talk a good game and not back it up with living a good game? And you have to know, folks, because the context is worship. Worship is a verb. Weber had it right when he wrote that book. Worship is a verb. It's action. And it's incongruent for you to have happy hands and not do anything about it. This is Isaiah's challenge. And this is our challenge for us this morning. All right? So, we know there are four kind of life-giving truths in this text. There are four life-giving truths, so you're going to mark these down, and it's going to kind of give us hooks to hang our thoughts on. Ultimately, we're going to get to verse 17. That's the second hook in this, or the third hook, but I want you to just kind of track with me because I want you to appreciate how bad it really is, right? And here's what they're doing. They're worshiping, but their hypocrisy is getting in the way, and there's zero activism, zero justice going on. So they've got everything out of order. It's always right living, right worship will produce right activism. And whenever you get those out of whack or out of order, you've got issues. And that's exactly what's going on here. One last note. James, I think, is a, a hearty word here at this point. James 1.27. Pure and authentic worship in the sight of our God and Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So if you say you worship, you say you have authentic and true worship here at Southbridge, then it will then produce a burden and a heart for orphans and widows and all kinds of injustice that's in our culture that we need to be aware of, and in our county here in Wake County. First life-giving truth. Here it is. You ready for it? Write it down. Hypocrisy will harden your heart. Danger, danger, danger. Hypocrisy will harden your heart. We see this in verses 1 through 15. I just want to point out to you how bad it was there in Jerusalem and how God describes their hardening heart, their cold, apathetic heart. Check out verse 2 of chapter 1. Look at it with me. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Do you sense the urgency? No credentials. He just jumps into the vision. He just jumps into the exhortation. There's urgency. It's almost palpable in the text. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. Folks, he's not talking to the town drunk. Sons, these are God's people out of sync and out of step with God himself. How bad is it? Look at verse 3. The ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's manger or ESV, which is kind of weird, crib. But Israel doesn't even know my people, don't even understand. Do you understand what he's saying? The dumbest animals, the ox and the donkey, are smarter than God's people on this very issue of worship and hypocrisy. They don't bite the hand that feeds them. They're obedient. They do exactly as they're told. We call them the dumb ox or the dumb donkey. They're not the sharpest knives in the drawer, but they know, they know not to bite the owner's 
hand that feeds him. God says, my own people, my sons that I've reared, that I've raised up, God's very people are singing how great thou art and doing nothing for vulnerable people. This is a huge problem. It's always true of sin, right? Sin makes us stupid. Categorically. I mean, five seconds outside of the Spirit's influence and the will of God for your life, you'd be shocked at what you're capable of, right? That's right. Sin makes us stupid. And so, furthermore, he says they're heavy with hypocrisy. Look at verse 4. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down. Remember I said it's kind of a dense, heavy portion, just this front end? And we've got to be honest to the text. They're literally weighed down with their iniquity. It's bad. It's real bad. Offspring of evildoers, sons acting corruptly, abandoning the Lord, despising the Holy One of Israel. That's not a good thing. That's not a good resume. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? Verse 5. The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of your foot even to your head, there's nothing sound in it. That's unbelievable. From the top of your head to the sole of your feet, battered. Clubbered is the word in Hebrew. Clubbered in a ditch on the side of the road. It's so bad. Remember what I said? They're in the spiritual what? Gutter. So on the outside, flourishing like crazy. Everybody's happy, economy's going, everybody's kicking, and yet there's this societal malady of injustice underneath the surface that everybody's kind of saying, hey, that's not my problem. That's the state's problem. I gave at the office, right? Oh, no. Orphan care is not the state's problem, folk. The state will never be able to care for orphans. The state is good for one thing. Peace and protection, right? Romans 13. That's all we're good for. We're not good at parenting. We'll never be good at parenting. We need to get these children in forever homes as fast as humanly possible and responsible and safe. But we'll never be good at that. But what happens is the state gets tagged with the responsibility. And I don't care how much money and how many bodies you throw at this, it's not the solution. The church is the solution. The church is responsible. And this is what was going on in Isaiah's day with God's people. They were responsible, but they were kicking the can. And nobody was taking the ownership of this thing. And so they're flourishing on the outside, but they're not convicted because their hearts are hard and their hearts are are cold. Hypocrisy will harden your heart. And so what he does in verses 1 to 15 is give us a diagnosis. It gets darker, though. Look how dark it is. He says, only bruises, whelps, verse 6, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. Open sores, pummeled because of their sin. It goes on. Your land is desolate. Your cities are like being burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them. It is desolation, overthrown with strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard or like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field. You have become so ineffective and so small, you're like a shanty hut in the middle of a cucumber field. Well, you're supposed to make a big dent. You're God's voice and God's people, and you put a stake in the ground in Jerusalem, and you act like a hut in a cucumber field? He's saying, this is incongruent. You you can't be worshiping and praising the Lord and let everything else go to pot all around you. There's a huge problem. They're heavy with hypocrisy. It's wearing them down. It's beating them down. It's desolate. So he's kind of talking about the community there in verses 1 to 9. But then he gets to meddling. You know what that means when when we're talking in preachers? We talk when you're meddling. That's when it gets personal. We kind of poke you in the eye a little bit. So he kind of moves from the community to the place of worship. Look at verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, people. You rulers of Sodom, give ear to the instruction of our God and you people of Gomorrah. Did you see what he just did? That would be so offensive. He just called him Sodom and Gomorrah. It's so bad. It has risen to such a stench level that he's comparing them now to Sodom and Gomorrah on this issue of caring for vulnerable people. He said, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough. Look at this, folks. I've had enough of your burnt offerings, of rams, of the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the bulls, lambs, and goats. Pause. Isn't he the one that came up with the sacrificial system? This is God 
who came up with the sacrificial system saying, hey, I don't like it. I don't like it because of the way you're doing it. You see, there's acceptable worship and unacceptable. And whenever you have unacceptable worship, it actually is an offense to God. You're posing. You never want to fake it till you make it in worship. You never want to get your hard heart where you're just kind of going through the motions, checking all the boxes off. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Incense? It's an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath? The calling of the assemblies? I can't even endure it. I, can't en- I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly itself. I even hate. Look at the vocabulary. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They become a burden to me. They, they're weary to me. They bear down on me. It's overwhelming. Look at the last one. It's a kicker. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. That's active evasion. You, the heavens are brass. Shut down. It, your, your behavior is so out of balance. And your lack of care for vulnerable people is so out of whack. I don't care what you do in worship. If you sing and do cartwheels up here, it doesn't matter if it doesn't lead to helping and fighting injustice that's in the community and in the culture. He said, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood, guilt, stained with with guilt. Ouch. You see, I want you to sense the weight of it because there's relief coming. There's grace coming. And just so you know, that's how Isaiah is. He, He judges and then he swoops in with grace, the power of the gospel to relieve the tension that's there. You should at this point be going, holy guacamole, that is a problem. And then you should be going, oh, maybe that's a problem with us, right? Let's let's bring it 21st century, right? Let's go all the way. He's basically saying, your sacrifices mean nothing to me. They make me nauseous. They make me sick. I've had enough. This is crazy. You appear before God physically, but spiritually your heart is far from it. It's a dangerous thing to harden your heart in worship. It's a dangerous thing to get a cold heart, right? Remember the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2? They'd done so many things. I mean, I promise you, you'd have joined the church in Ephesus. They were like the few, the proud, the Ephesians, right? You would totally, you would totally join that church. And then you read that last thing and he goes, but I have one thing against you. And it's one humdinger. He's like, I have one thing against you. You left your first love. Whoa. It's kind of the feel here. Like, you're doing all these things, you're going through all the motions, you've got, you're bringing the killer calves, like you're saving the best stuff up for the Lord, but, but you're not, your faith is without works. And James would later say, that is dead and dangerous. You're offering me a gift of nothing. It's abominable. Look at the vocabulary he uses. I hate it all. I even hate your prayers. So we conclude with the life-giving principle number one, that hypocrisy will harden your heart. And the diagnosis, it's pretty bad, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't you agree? It's pretty, pretty bad there. It's pretty dark. It, it's really bad. But here comes the relief. Then how do we fix it? What's the prescription? How do we, how do we stop this? If this is true of us, if it could be true of this church or any church in North Carolina, how do we stop it? That's verse 16. And it gives us a second life-giving truth. It's this. Genuine repentance will transform your life. Hypocrisy will harden your heart, but genuine repentance will transform your life. Here comes grace. Here comes the solution. Here comes the gift of repentance. You got to stop the facade, stop going through the motion, and engage repentance. Let me give you a good definition of repentance. It's one of my favorite by Louis Burkhoff, the, the, the theologian. It's threefold, but you need to understand all three things have to be true to be true repentance. First, repentance is an intellectual recognition of the guilt of sin, right? Second, emotional sorrow for sin, so mind, heart, and volitional turning from sin, action. All three have to be in play. You just can't feel sorrow because there's a sorrow that's not repentance, right? 2 Corinthians 7. It's true sorrow that... Man, it gets in the mind and says, hey, you're messed up. That was bad. Man, I feel bad about that. 
and now I'm going to stop. That's repentance, biblical repentance, right? That shatters pride, shatters self-styled worship. You abandon the old ways, you set new priorities, and you grow in grace. Listen, folks, repentance is the way of life. If you've been caught this morning, if you've been posing in worship, and your worship's kind of fake, and you're a big talker, but you don't really back it up with how you live, or how you serve, or how you give yourself away towards vulnerable people, listen to me. Repentance is the way of life. Proverbs 6.23 says, repentance is the way of life. I've been married 25 years. Trust me on this, dudes. I repent all day, every day. I repent so much. I've eaten so much crow, it tastes like prime rib. I mean, I'm just like, oh, this is awesome, you know. I get up in the morning, I put my feet on the floor. I said, I did it. She goes, you weren't even here. I did it. I, I, mean, I wasn't even in the neighborhood. No, I did it. I just own everything because I'm just an idiot, right? And, and you are too, pal. And uh, so you just start repenting. Like, repentance is how marriage works, right? Everybody's repenting. I even catch my wife repenting when she should. I'm like, hey, you repent and knock it off. Stop that. You're trying to, she, we race to repentance. So we're like, I know what you're trying to do. So we find about repenting. You know, it's just real jacked up in our family. You can see we have issues. As, um, so anyway, uh, not, you know, listen, nothing pleases God apart from a clear conscience. Repentance is the mechanism. So when you recognize, wow, I've been a hypocrite, then how do you get out of that System. How do you get out of that rhythm, that pattern that you've established of coming in, hearing, and doing nothing about it, walking out those doors, and have no plans to edit your life? It's repentance. And look at it, verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. It really is that simple, folks. Wash yourselves. Why? Because sin makes you dirty. you got to clean up your life through repentance. It's an internal change of heart, right? Sin defiles. It needs to be cleaned. Isaiah knew that. Second, he says, remove the evil. you got to take out the contagion, right? you got to take out the hypocrisy. Take out the heart of stone and put a heart of flesh in it, right? There's no worship void of repentance. It's the means. We lift our hands, we sing the hallelujah chorus, and we repent of our sins. Finally, he says, stop. Stop the charades. Cease to do evil. Stop it. Knock it off. It's a general appeal to stop all moral evil. Stop the hollow worship. Stop the fake worship. The fruit of repentance, the fruit of healthy worship, and the fruit of repentance is the changed life, the transformed life. You need to have genuine sorrow that leads to repentance. Ray Ortland in Nashville said this, acceptable worship is sweetened with a spirit of repentance. Repentance is a verb, Right? God doesn't delight in our sacrifices, Psalm 51. I'll tell you what he does delight. He delights in our repentance. He delights in our genuine repentance. Life-giving truth number two, genuine repentance will transform your life. Life-giving principle number three, the core of our text, we have arrived. There's a lot of work getting there, but we've arrived. Third, gospel compassion will inspire you to action. Compassion will inspire you to action. Remember, they were big talkers with little action. This is the problem. This is the problem. True repentance and worship is a call to action, is obedience. You ask yourself, how do you know someone's repentant? By what they do. Their next step, how they respond, right? Zacchaeus, he goes back and Makes it right. Right worship, right living affects our actions. You can't separate worship from actions. And I'm telling you, that's a problem in the church today. They somehow, we somehow think we can worship but don't have commensurate action. And this is what Isaiah is going after. And this is something we need to consider. Faith without works is dead, right? It's a verb, If you are going to have God's heart, 
you are going to love vulnerable people. And if you don't love vulnerable people, you should be suspicious that you have a a right heart, a soft heart. You see, orphans in particular and widows and really any vulnerable people, God shows them special care. They're the apple of his eye. He watches over them. This is why it's the responsibility of the church to care for them. It's not the responsibility of the state of Kentucky or the state of North Carolina. It is not. They're not, they're not doing it by mandate. That just came along in 1912. And we'll never be good at it. It's, it's actually baked into the gospel. You've got it here in Isaiah 117. You've got it in James 1. But check out Exodus 22. Exodus 22, 22 says, You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict him at all, and if he does cry out to me at all, I will surely hear his cry, and my anger will be kindled, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. Yikes. See, God takes this pretty serious, folks, so we need to consider it, right? This is a part of the, this is a part of the gospel, and they were in total violation of the Sinaitic Covenant, even though they were checking off all the boxes, even though they were bringing the best calves, praying the prayers, doing everything. They were doing everything right, but they were in full violation. And they'll provoke God by their actions. They provoke God so much that he felt compelled to send in a prophet to say, hey, I don't care about your worship. Yippee I don't care. If it's not backed up with action, right? Faith without works is categorically dead. They had an appearance of, of godliness, but they denied it with their, their works, and they were exploiting helpless people. Listen, worship and exploiting vulnerable people is incongruent. And I'll just let you know, it's all over your community. It really is. It's really bad. Um, ex-military, don't cry a whole lot. I've cried more in the last four months working with child welfare than I've been cried my entire life. Because I have to make hard decisions. I have to make a decision at four or five in the afternoon to not pull a child, not sure, want to be respectful of biological families. And the child gets killed at seven by the father. You wear that stuff. My wife often sees me driving past our house, just trying to gain composure when I come home in the evening. I've seen more abuse. Listen to me, I'm a pastor. I've seen marriages fall apart. I've seen darkness. Not to the likes of child abuse, though. Not in this space. So if you're coming into this space, which we're going to call you to in some form, just know it's dark and hard. It's really hard. But it's beautiful. It's hard, and it's amazingly rewarding. But I want to be fair, it's hard. Because when kids come into a state's care, and kids become orphaned, there's no such thing as a kid in our care that's not experienced trauma at some level, at some level. It's a trauma kind of informed system, and I can tell you from breathing the air for the last quarter, it is tough. I mean, I am, not, I am telling you, I am a wreck. I'm all over the place, and I'm a pretty steady Eddie guy. I'm emotional. My wife's like, I'm a different person. Like, I've never seen darkness like this, and I'm telling you, it's right in your back door. Just to give you an impression of how bad it is, 70% of all human trafficking in North Carolina is coming out of the foster care system. 70. And here's how it works. When those children, youth, emancipate and they sign out, so they age out at 18, they sign out. That's typical. You know what we do with them in Kentucky? Because they sign out. They're officially, someone decided 18 was the magic age. Somebody... You know what I do? I drop them off at a homeless shelter. You know where all the traffickers are sitting at? Yep. It's happening all around you. So verse, verse 17 is how you can get involved. Look at it. There are five ways. Learn to do good. First thing you need to do is educate yourself. Now this Sunday, we're focused on orphans, right? But there's all kinds of things. There's abortion. There's human trafficking. There's lack of compassion towards widows. I mean, it's, it's just any vulnerable person you take care of. 
I don't know about you, but even as a dad, I, I raised my boys to take care of vulnerable kids, even in school. And I told them, you light them up. You punch them in the nose if they're take, picking on other kids. You just, because he's huge. You just punch them in the nose. In Jesus' name, of course. But you do, you know. Just, just trying to help. Just trying to serve. Uh, so learn, right? Learn. It's all around you. I mean, it really is. And we live in our insulated bubbles, right? Just like I was as a pastor. And all of a sudden, I stepped out from the private religious world and stepped into the public square as a special advisor. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it is so bad. And it's kind of like as bad as it is there in Isaiah 1. In our country, and I'm sure North Carolina is representative just like Kentucky's representative, right? So it starts with educating yourself. Pick one of those areas, pick a societal malady, and get engaged. Start doing some research. Start thinking. Just Google it. I've, I Googled your stats in this state just this morning. You can see it. Second, seek justice. When you do justice work, you're probably not ever going to be thanked. Never going to be thanked. We don't do it for that. But you seek justice for people. You change laws. You petition. You do advocacy for children. Third, reprove and fight evil people. Evil people plunder vulnerable people. This is how this works. Evil people plunder vulnerable people. That's who they prey on. Fourth, defend the orphan, it says there. Or adopt an orphan. The neglected kids. So there are six, what, 87? In this county, Wake County, looking for a forever home, looking for a family. But I need to be honest with you. Remember I said it was beautiful and hard and rewarding? Some of you don't ever need to foster and you don't need to adopt because if your marriage is not strong, you'll be undone. So as much as I'd love to say, every one of you, right? Every one of you needs to step up. I would just caution you that it's, it's, a, it's a tough space to be in. And you need to, be, you need to have a rock-solid marriage. We, our foster care families are like SEAL Team 6 families, you know. they they just like machines. You could give them 300 kids and they'd, they'd figure it out. I just, their moms are insane. They're just awesome. You know, and, and some of you need to do that. How many people here have fostered or adopted or in both or have been in the continuum in somewhere? Just raise your hand. Nice, look at that, look at those hands. So here's people right here who are serving. And I just told you, some of you don't need to foster, but what I wanna put at your feet in that practical section of the sermon, I wanna put at your feet that you can do something. Every one of us can do something. This is how this works. So the, the state will never solve this problem. They're not wired or capable, right? But they do it. And we give to that in taxes, and we do that. And that's a piece of it. But what we need is everybody, the church, to arise and, and do something. So I just told you, some of you don't need to foster, and some of you don't need to adopt. I want to relieve you of that pressure. Because if I'm the guy that comes in, I'm the, you know, the guy that rides in on a white horse, and says, everybody needs to foster and adopt. Oh, no. It's a tough. These are not your little Sunday school kids. These kids have been abused, and raped, beaten, tortured. And they're going to have behaviors. And if you're parenting because you're embarrassed, this is not a space for you. However, every one of you can serve in this space. Let me give you some examples. So this family here, and I saw a couple there, you could provide them what we call respite, where you come in and say, hey, why don't you go on a date night? Because it's tough. Uh, you could do respite care. Some of you grandfathers, these kids that are in foster care in the church, need to get to visitation with their biological families. You could drive them. Um, some of you can cook. I can tell by your husbands, you can cook. <laughs> you know, it's awesome. Uh, you can bake them a pie. Um, you could do that. Some of you own businesses. You're businessmen. You could provide your services for foster families or adoptive families. You, you have an oil change business or something. You, you can just do that as a service, as a ministry, right? So there's a continuum of care. There are thousands of things. Cook a meal, pray at dinner. You know what we do with our Christmas cards? You're like, you always take them down, throw them away, don't you? Don't do that. Put them in a little leather box, cool one. Go to Hobby Lobby, they're believers. And get a, get a leather box, put them in there. And every dinner, guess what you do? You pull out a Christmas card. You look at them, pray for them. We'll do that with orphans. Pray for them. So prayer could be your ministry. You could be a CASA volunteer. You could adopt. You could foster. And some of you need to step up. 
And you know God's been laying it on your heart. And your wife's going to pray you into it, sir. Watch out. They're deadly on this stuff. That's what happened to me. I'm, I'm, I'm having to, you know, eat my own soup. So I had to go sign up to be a foster dad if I'm going to be over the th- something. Gift cards. You could provide a gift card. How about mowing? Some of you are mean mowers. you got the straightest mowing lines in North Carolina. Well, go over there and mow their house. Give them a break. Mow their yard. Grocery shopping. Some of you ladies are machines. You know, you clip everything. You're weird, but you clip everything out of the papers, you know. you got more coupons than everything. You know, just, I mean, there's just, I'm just giving you sample after sample. So here's the deal. When we ask the church to step up and serve and we lay that at the feet of the elders and at Scott's feet as pastor, I'm not saying all of you should foster it. I'm saying you ought to be involved in some way. There's three tables out there. There's Reclaim, there's Safe Families, which serves on the edge of care, and then there's you know, the Methodist home there, which is probably residential of sorts. All these things are just pieces, but it takes a village. It takes everybody. But you sitting on the sidelines, oh, I see some grandmothers, grams, listen to me, grams, look up. Here's the deal. When I do an ECO, emergency custody order, 72 hours in Kentucky. I have 72 hours to find out I pulled a child because it's unsafe conditions and something's happened. I need to be able to call you at 10 o'clock at night and I just need you to watch that baby for 72 hours for me. I need you to have a pack and play, some sheets. We'll, we'll give you the food. I need you to show up at the hospital because sin never happens between nine and five, just so you'll know. So I need you to show up at 10 o'clock and you, I know you're not going to adopt them. I know you're going to foster teenagers who are going to knock your block off. You're not doing that. We're not asking you to do that. We're asking you to step up with babies. How many grandmothers would love to just serve in that way? This is a need in every state. It's a need in North Carolina. It's a need in Kentucky. I'm just, I'm just giving you ideas. And this is how you deal with injustice. So I don't want to say there's varsity, the, the foster folks in the church, they're killing it, and the rest of you, everybody needs to serve, everybody needs to own this, and I'm literally here telling you, and laying it at your feet with some insider ball here, that you can do this as a church, and the kids are all around you, and these kids come into our care to no fault of their own, and all they need, I'll be honest with you, I know they have some behaviors, I've got a 14-year-old, trust me, I'm just telling you though, they need a loving family. And some of you are awesome at loving. You're machines at loving. I'm asking you to step up and to honor the scriptures. That's what Reclaim 117, to reclaim your heart and and love for, for foster children. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Get in people's face. Talk to the judges. See people who are abusing them. You see someone abusing somebody, you pull up the side of the road. I don't care if he's 6'5". Take him out at the knees. You, you do whatever it takes, Right? We, that's just what we instinctively, we're not going to drive by and go, oh, look, that guy's hitting his wife. No, I'm getting out, and I'm going to scrap, you know, and I may lose, but I'm going to go down fighting with no teeth, but I'm going to, I'm going to, there's going to be a fight. I'm just telling you, right, in the name of Jesus. You know, you just turn the other cheek. There's no more instruction after that, right? So to take one, no more instruction, then you fire back. That's just free. Anyway, that's for the fellas. That's the manhood book. You can look at it later. Um, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. So this is heavy. Look, I know. This is tough stuff. And oh, by the way, there are almost 9,387 churches, to be exact, in North Carolina. Ooh. And you got 11,000 kids, right? You can do the math. That's like 1.2, 3 kids. That's just, if the whole church, if you guys just said, we'll take one, this church, and we'll sponsor that foster care family. We'll help them through the training. We'll get them trauma-informed training. We'll, we'll get them ready. We'll come in and give them breaks and respite care and love on them and meals. And just one. Think about it. Man, this is not the state's problem. This is the church's problem. I just put it at your feet. Worship, hear me, worship without activism is worthless. That was the message 700 years before Christ, and it's actually the message this morning on Orphan Care Sunday. But in faithfulness, there's a fourth life-giving truth. This is where grace comes in, because he's been throwing down the hammer, right? It's tough. But look at verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, is that not the greatest word picture? Red like crimson, they'll be like wool. That is in juxtaposition to verse 16 and 17. Repent, take action, 
gratitude. Fourth life-giving truth is this. When you have been forgiven, you will live from gratitude. The rescued will do the rescuing. That's the point. If you've been rescued by the power of the gospel, then you know you were once an orphan and God rescued you with the power of the gospel, right? Ephesians 1, he he adopted you. It's the rescued that take action and do the rescuing. It's because that you have been forgiven of so much, you give back. You're not here for yourself. You've got to engage. You've got to be more understanding. You've got to do something beyond yourself. And he says, listen, mull it over. Think about it. You've been forgiven. And that gratitude ought to dislodge you from hypocrisy, shenanigans, fake worship, and a cold heart. And if it does not dislodge you, you have every reason to question, have you ever been transformed by the power of the gospel? It makes me suspicious as a pastor. This is what Scott and I would talk about when we were, you know, this is insider ball. When we were away, we're like, man, the people are not taking action. What? Why is that? Well, why? Is it, is it ignorance? And I don't mean that pejoratively. Maybe they just don't know. Maybe. That's why he says educate yourself. So you've been duly informed. Educate yourself, right? But it's because of the grace of God. The reason I'm doing what I'm doing at 52 years old and walked away from my entire career to go work for the government is because I had an opportunity to make a big difference for 8,500 kids in Kentucky. And hopefully, it'll have an impact. And it's not, it's not the government doesn't need um, incremental change. That's what they do. It's reimagining. It's not reform. It's reimagining a whole new system. And that's what we're trying to do. Just, but we've got to put our own house in the order, order, be honest with you. We can't help any other state because we've we got our own mess to deal with, right? And in my heart, I've adopted two boys, probably going to foster here soon. And 1 Corinthians 13 just cries out to me, without love, you're nothing. You can talk a good game. You can move mountains. You can have all the spiritual gifts you want, pal. But if you don't have love, goose egg. Let's pray together.